I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. My last night of childhood began with a visit home. Tkatoi's sister had given us two sterile eggs. Tkatoi gave one to my mother, brother, and sisters. She insisted that I eat the other one alone. It didn't matter. There was still enough to leave everyone feeling good. Almost everyone. My mother wouldn't take any. She sat, watching everyone drifting and dreaming without her. Most of the time, she watched me. I lay against Gato's long, velvet underside, sipping from my egg now and then, wondering why my mother denied herself such a harmless pleasure. Less of her hair would be gray if she indulged now and then. The egg's prolonged life, prolonged vigor. My father, who had never refused one in his life, had lived more than twice as long as he should have. And toward the end of his life, when he should have been slowing down, he had married my mother and fathered four children. That was the opening paragraph of Octavia Butler's Blood Child from her collection Blood Child and Other Stories, which was originally published in 1995. The book collects seven stories from throughout her career, and in this episode we focus on the title story, which depicts a social and sexual relationship between humans and a race of alien beings. Later we discuss the penultimate story in the collection, Amnesty, which also explores the complexities of confrontation with the alien other. Join us over the next hour while we discuss these darkly captivating stories by one of the most inventive writers within the field of science fiction. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, man? Yeah, a bit, bit chilly, but um, but otherwise very good, thanks. It's a bit of a, an icy front coming over the UK, is there then? Yeah, 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 definitely. I don't know, maybe some kind of localised weather system in my house at the moment <laughs> as well. <laughs> it looks very sunny outside, you know, people out in shorts and t-shirts. <laughs> unfortunately, in this, in this flat in East London, it's very, very cold. Today we're talking about Octavia Butler's Blood Child and Other Stories, which was originally published in 1995, I believe. But we're actually looking at the second edition, which came out in 2005, which includes a few extra stories. Um, how did you feel about reading this one, Rob? I enjoyed reading through the stories so much first time around, and I'm so happy that we're taking a bit of a deeper dive for the, for the podcast itself. Yeah, I've just been so blown away by rereading them and realising maybe quite how complex some of the stories are and how much is going on in them and yeah amazing mix of kind of horror but also humanity and um, I don't know just really 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 enjoyed them a lot how, how did you feel about them yeah they're really special I think I'd heard about Octavia Butler quite a lot and particularly recently I've, I've found her name coming up again and again as a sort of touchstone for 
innovative science fiction mm. writing. Yeah, enjoyed reading the collection en- enormously. There are stories in it that made a much bigger impression on me than others, mm. particularly the stories, well, the title story, Blood Child and Speech Sounds and Amnesty. But there are others that I could take or leave, mm. in all honesty. A, a, yeah, a, few, yeah. a few texts in here that didn't really stir very much in me. What captivated me most was probably a very unique quality of otherness that's stranger and more inventive than I've seen in a lot of science fiction stories before and I think maybe that's particularly the case with the aliens in the story Amnesty. Mm. Combined with that there's also this unceasing urge to engage with that otherness to cross mental and physical barriers and explore explore the unknown in both those senses physically and, and mentally and I, I really like the body horror element to some of them found it quite in, unsettling D- did you find that it comes close to body horror at times rob oh yeah definitely definitely and i think especially in the the kind of title story of this book it's incredibly repulsive at times but there's a yeah strangely if you were to see a, some kind of decomposing animal on the street or something that's you know met an untimely end there's a a strange pull towards looking at it as well as being absolutely revulsed and I think she captures that incredibly well in in the writing it's never so much to make you put the book down but there are these moments of um, really very visceral horror yeah and it feels very calculated it's not something gratuitous at all Mm. Uh, it sort of needs to be there in in, in every instance I think but maybe you should say something about this edition because I think it's quite interesting I find myself wanting to describe it as open or inclusive maybe maybe that's the better term Mm. you know it contains an author's introduction and after each story there's a little afterword from Octavia Butler and it almost feels like she's kind of guiding you through the process of reading the stories what did you think of the inclusion of those afterwards and and how personal the edition seems to be with those non-fiction pieces and so on yeah I mean there's elements of it that I really like you know as you say it does feel very personal and it, it does really feel like you get this kind of glimpse into her personality and she appears to be someone you know very generous and um, quick-witted and um in that way, it's really nice, but there is definitely something about that kind of shaping of the reading or shaping of the interpretation that I didn't like quite as much, especially when we also have in this collection two essays where she writes about her process of writing and why she writes. You know, it feels like maybe that might do the job of these afterwards rather than the necessary explaining to you what's going on because Mm. these are the stories are so so rich and um, I think when we've spoken about this previously one of the things I felt really strongly was that the short story form in her hands works so well in this kind of world building because there's no opportunity to kind of lay this elaborate groundwork which might not seem particularly realistic you're just completely dropped into this other world Mm. you have to kind of make sense of that on your own and so given that that's obviously like a very deliberate decision because these worlds are incredibly fleshed out I'd be really interested to know a bit more about her writing process because for me anyway the worlds that she writes about they really feel like they exist beyond the pages of these stories yeah and whether that involved a lot of research or whether that involved you know whether these stories were at one point longer and very pared down to what we have now Mm. I don't know or maybe she you know it's just incredibly inventive and able to understand how these pieces of these worlds would fit together coherently but that said some of 
that is maybe undone, I think, by these afterwards. Yeah, I think you're right. I was reminded of this lecture that I listened to. I listened to a great series of lectures by Simon Armitage. You know, he held, he held the Oxford Professor of Poetry chair and he gave mm. a series of, I think, 10 or 12 lectures on, on poetry. They're really, they're really good, but there's one in which he talks about inclusive and exclusive styles of poetry. And the, f- the former would be the kind of poem in which everything that one needs to find some kind of meaning or to analyze the poem is included within it mm. and the, and the latter so exclusive poetry would be to some extent dependent on external factors or knowledge of other texts whatever it might be so things are outside of the poem and that kind of barrier exists within it another way to think about it might be a sort of expanded notion of this linguistic term dyxis have you heard of that rob Mm. i've come across it quite recently no i don't think so it sort of considers how certain utterances can't be understood unless in a very specific context and Armitage opens that lecture by talk, talking about a time when he took his friend to a poetry reading and his friend had never been to one before. And after the reading, they were talking and uh, he asked his friend what he thought of it. And his friend said, the bits I liked best were the talking in between the poems <laughs> and more than the poems themselves. And, and he wondered, why don't they put those bits in the books? Mm. As in other words, sort of give you the tools to, to understand fully. Yeah. And it's a kind of interesting question, isn't it? I, I imagine what it would be like if all if it was common practice for all books to contain little asides from the author about his or her practice or inspiration or intentions even and my thought is that it gives the interpretive process a little less weight and maybe allows for a little a little less creativity you know Mm. that you you are doing less than your share as a reader (laughs) when you sort of have the have the answer and and for me that's a key part of reading this this feeling mm. that that I'm creating something with the author in some way I mean we don't have to allow those afterwards to reduce the stories to one interpretation but it can act as a bit of a block I think especially you know we'll talk about blood child but especially when Octavia Butler says it isn't about this um, mm. and tells you in very concrete terms that some interpretive avenues have to be shut down i find that a little bit a little bit frustrating and almost find myself thinking "Mm, is it the author's place to say that exactly yeah i mean i think there's i think a big strain of of criticism you know art criticism in the kind of like largest sense of art which would suggest that an artist actually doesn't have that right or that maybe not right the right word but it's just not possible that a a work of art will be its own thing and, and kind of have its own life and i would definitely be on that side of the argument I really you know I enjoyed reading these afterwards an awful lot but I also think it's okay if I disagree with this because inevitably as a reader I'm going to bring certain personal things to it and there's going to be certain resonances and elements of the story which for any number of reasons me for my you know personal reading is going to differ from anyone else's and that's yeah. what makes reading so wonderful I guess and also what make these discussions so wonderful and hopefully discussions that might flow out of this if the book was just the book and that was it then there wouldn't really be any reading clubs or uh, fantastic literary podcasts. 
<laughs> or anything because you know there'd be no need for discussion being generous and, and as I say she comes across as someone very generous so I yeah. think it should be reciprocated like I think with these afterwards she's kind of adding to that conversation hopefully rather than any attempt to close it down there is something strange about saying you know this this story is not this or it is this Mm. saying okay that's that's your intention but as an artist i don't think you can ever say that your intention matches perfectly with the outcome there's always going to be unintended consequences and that's a good thing yeah and contexts shift over time and geographically mm. and socially in all manner of ways so that we can't really think of it as something that's ever going to be stable and critics certainly haven't accepted her interpretation exclusively or in her intentions exclusively Rob, so you have something to say about Octavia Butler's life? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, yes, she's born in 1947 in Pasadena, California. Her mother, Octavia Guy, is a housemaid, and her father, Loris Butler, is a shoeshine man. Literally someone on the on the street shining shoes. Mm. But he, he dies when she's seven, and she's then raised by her mother and maternal grandmother, and she's... Kind of self-described this as a as a strict Baptist household. As she's growing up, she kind of has this almost stereotypical kind of like writer's background of um, very shy, apparently. She's also very tall. Mm. Uh, so I think as an adult, she's over six foot, very tall child. And that was, you know, led to shyness and this kind of introverted, but very physically present girl. Mm. Made her a, a target for, for bullies. And yeah, kind of a big knock to self-confidence. And as a result, she sort of spent more and more time in in books and then also writing beginning apparently with uh, sort of like children's fairy tales and then moves on to science fiction magazines which I guess at this time you know so we're talking about mid 50s early 60s it's like a real golden age for that kind of pulp science fiction yeah at the age of 10 she begs her mother to buy her a typewriter I don't know if this for sure but I imagine it might have been quite a purchase for a 10 year old girl especially if your mother is a, a housemaid but it obviously you know has a has a big effect on her as a writer that she continues to do this and then the the kind of origin story goes that which I've seen repeated in several different sources that she watched a televised version of the film Devil Girl from Mars when I was 12 I saw a terrible movie called Devil Girl from Mars one of those sad 1950s movies um the Martians had, uh, for some reason, lost all their men, so they'd come to Earth to get some more. And for some reason, in spite of the fact that the Martian women were beautiful, the Earth men didn't want to go. And I turned off the television and said to myself, I can write a better story than that. And from what I've heard, that's the way a great many people start writing, just the idea that what they're seeing is so awful, they can do better. I sat down and began writing my first science fiction story, which also turned out to be my first patternist story. Another thing that comes up a lot in the in the kind of literature about her life is uh, a comment made by her aunt, who suggests, uh, apparently in a kind of well-intentioned way, that Negroes can't be writers. Mm. You know, I think the fact that she's uh, begging her mother to buy a typewriter at 10 and, and kind of rewriting film scripts at 12 suggests that, you know, her character certainly is one that these kind of obstacles aren't going aren't gonna to hold her down, but perhaps make her even more determined to do this. Yeah, she seems to have incredible self-belief and sort of sacrifices a lot to her art, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a really nice 
quote that comes from Carolyn Davidson's study. It's called The Science Fiction of Octavia Butler. And it just simply says that I began writing about power because I had so little. And I guess this, you know, maybe for all children, there's um, that kind of like creative element that you have a lot invested in, this kind of like creating of worlds because you're exploring the world and you're uh, coming to terms with it. But also you have you have very little responsibility. Uh, so these things can be fun, but also you, you don't really have much control over the world around you. You know, that's for as I say, for most children, I think to be a, a black girl in the 50s in, in the US is obviously like even more true, perhaps. Mm. So, yeah, as you say, you know, incredible worth ethic by the sound of it. And that after graduating high school, she, she worked in the day and attended Pasadena City College night school. And this is a time, obviously mid-60s it's kind of like black power movement and a huge amount of civil rights stuff going on and this apparently is where she gets the idea for her probably I think probably her best known novel say Kindred the one that's yeah perhaps yeah. most critically acclaimed yeah I haven't read this have you read Kindred no no not yet but no, it, no, it, no, I, yeah. I re- certainly will after yeah reading this collection but from what i know about it it's a time travel science fiction dealing with slavery but comes to it from a very interesting angle that it attempts to understand different sides and isn't purely looking at at the horrors which undoubtedly were taken apart and we can talk about this later but i think her understanding of of otherness and the attempt to understand both sides in the fear and the the power structures that that creates is very present whether it's talking about alien beings or um, human reactions to each other Mm. is very formed by her reaction seemingly to the the civil rights movement a big move to her becoming a professional writer is when she attends the open door workshop of the writers guild of american west where her, her writing is noticed by Harlan Ellison and he encourages her to attend a six-week clarion science fiction writers workshop and there she meets Samuel Delaney so another prominent black science fiction writer who's a long-time friend and it's also at this point that she she sells her first stories but she works for the next few years you know not making enough money to be a full-time writer but nevertheless she writes prolifically and in 1978 she's able to stop working at these kind of other jobs and continue her writing throughout the late 70s into the early 80s she's kind of writing and gets uh, another kind of big break when speech sounds which is one of the stories again in this collection wins the hugo award for short story and then the following year so 1985 blood child which we'll be talking about a lot uh, also wins the hugo award and also locus award and the science fiction chronicle award for best novelette and so at this point she's you know she's very very established and i think perhaps it may be fair to say that of all the writers we've looked at in this podcast, she might even be one of the most critically acclaimed. Yeah, certainly. I mean, rivaled perhaps in our back catalogue only by Russell Hoban, maybe. Mm. And and Nan yeah. Shepard these days, too. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but not yeah. to the same extent. But yeah, a, a much more famous writer than we're accustomed to covering here. I've really enjoyed reading her work and thinking about it, so... I'm really glad we've chosen to do it. After this, she she travels to the Amazon rainforest. And I think there's some really, I don't know, there's obviously an awful lot going on in these stories about North American, US 
politics, civil rights, obviously. But I also think there's perhaps an awful lot going on in terms of the kind of like colonial history of South America as well. Mm. And probably this extends to indigenous people in North America, but the perception of indigenous peoples by Europeans, I think there's a, there's a definite theme there that comes across in the human alien relations in these books. But in her later years, she really struggles with writer's block and depression. Apparently, it's the side effect of medication for her high blood pressure. Rather than writing so much, she teaches at the Clarion Science Fiction's writing workshop, which is obviously where some of this kind of began, and elsewhere. And then, um, yeah, very kind of tragically, she, she dies outside her home, age only 58, in um, 2006. It's kind of unclear exactly whether it's heart attack or a stroke, or whether she she falls and hits her head as a, because of the heart attack or stroke, but anyway, dies very young, tragically, but leaves behind this incredible body of work and an enormous influence, I think. It's maybe worth saying as well that she is a recipient of this MacArthur Fellowship or the Genius Grant, which is an, mm. a huge deal, I think. And, you know, other recipients in literature have included Cormac McCarthy and Derek Walcott, David Foster Wallace... Joseph Brodsky I think as well she's in very good company there and I didn't do an exhaustive check on this but I don't know how many writers who could be considered to work in the field of science fiction have received that award I certainly know in 95 when she was given the award she, it, she was the only science fiction writer to or considered science fiction writer to have been given it mm. but I don't know if that's if there's been someone since but certainly so as a, as a kind of African American woman to be the first as well as a testament to incredible amount of hard work but also incredible quality of, of her work so yeah, yeah. Please, the man begged. Wait. There's no more time, Bram. I'll sting you as soon as it's over. When Tkotkiv arrives, she'll give you eggs to help you heal. It will be over soon. Tkotkiv, the man shouted, straining against my hands. Soon, Bram. Tkatoy glanced at me, then placed a claw against his abdomen slightly to the right of the middle, just below the left rib. There was movement on the right side. Tiny, seemingly random pulsations moving his brown flesh, creating a concavity here, a convexity there, over and over until I could see the rhythm of it and knew where the next pulse would be. Loma's entire body stiffened under Gato's claw, though she merely rested it against him as she wound the rear section of her body around his legs. He might break my grip, but he would not break hers. He wept helplessly as she used his pants to tie his hands, then pushed his hands above his head so that I could kneel on the cloth between them and pin them in place. She rolled up his shirt and gave it to him to bite down on, and she opened him. His body convulsed with the first cut. He almost tore himself away from me. The sound he made, I had never heard such sounds come from anything human. Gato seemed to pay no attention as she lengthened and deepened the cut, now and then pausing to lick away blood. His blood vessels contracted, reacting to the chemistry of her saliva, and the bleeding slowed. I felt as though I were helping her torture him, helping her consume him. I knew I would vomit soon, didn't know why I hadn't already. I couldn't possibly last until she was finished. She found the first grub, it was fat and deep red with his blood, both inside and out. It had already eaten its own egg case, but apparently had not yet began to eat its host. 
At this stage, it would eat any flesh except its mother's. Let alone, it would have gone on excreting the poisons that had both sickened and alerted Lomas. Eventually, it would have begun to eat. By the time it ate its way out of Lomas' flesh, Lomas would be dead or dying, and unable to take revenge on the thing that was killing him. There was always a grace period between the time the host sickened and the time the grabs began to eat him. Tkatoi picked up the writhing grub carefully and looked at it, somehow ignoring the terrible groans of the men. Abruptly, the men lost consciousness. So, Bloodchild is set on an alien planet where a group of Terrans have settled after escaping Earth. Do we know what happened to them on Earth? Is that ever fully explained? It's kind of mentioned vaguely that they may have been trying to escape some kind of persecution, that perhaps they would have been killed by other humans had they not gone to this other planet and eventually found the protection of, of these alien beings. It just says, um, it says, your ancestors fleeing from their home world, from their own kind, who would have killed or enslaved them, they survived because of us. So yeah, it certainly seems to imply some kind of war or genocide or... Um, yeah, but something, I think, yeah, that's a really good point to say here is that it's very specifically escaping war this isn't this isn't people who've left the planet because of uh, a natural disaster or something that was kind of outside of the the remit of human activity this is definitely escaping persecution and so this planet is occupied by the tlick an insect-like race of beings who seem to depend upon hosts to complete their life cycle they have to lay their eggs in other animals and after the humans arrive the click realize that they make for the perfect host and their bodies allow a, a much more substantial reproductive yield than any of the animals native <laughs> to the planet do and by the time our story begins it seems that there's a kind of diplomatically established protocol between the two races a kind of interdependency and maybe almost protective relationship but we can talk about that in, in more detail i think and the story is narrated by the character gan who's a young boy and he's been chosen as the host for the eggs of a particular click called Tugatoi. I think this is something like a kind of beauty of, of the story is that despite there being an awful lot of description of these aliens, when, when you describe them as insects, I, I saw them as a kind of lizard or some kind of reptile. Oh, you did? Yeah. It talks about their bones at one point, And I suppose I didn't really think about this at the time, but obviously insects have an exoskeleton, mm. whereas lizards will have an internal skeleton. And it's probably neither of these. But I like that despite there being a huge amount of descriptive passages on these aliens, Aliens mm. and their interaction with humans and even you know the way that certain things have been modified for their use there is definitely enough here for the for the reader to impose upon their own idea of what these things might be yeah i mean i i thought of them as insect like because of that reproductive cycle yeah and certainly the the kind of the grub worms yeah would, would suggest that definitely yeah exactly or i thought of them as maybe scorpion like in some sense that's the kind of mm. image i had in my mind yeah they have lots of limbs and seem to have this long curling tail with a sting on the end of it anyway in the story 
again the narrator realizes that he will be chosen as the host and the story depicts the relationship between Gan and Tagatoi, the click that seems to occupy the, the family home and seem to have some rule over this family and we get to see his conflicted feelings about that prospect after having witnessed one of these births, if we can call it that, mm. of the of the eggs within a human body. It's quite a graphic story mm. and quite disturbing I think, but very, very interesting in terms of the resonances it had. I'm I'm really curious how you saw the relationship between the two races, Rob, because as we said, Octavia Butler is very explicit about this not being a story about slavery. Uh, in the afterword, she mm. says, it amazes me that some people have seen <laughs> Blood Child as a story about slavery. It isn't. It's a number of other things, though. On one level, it's a love story between two different beings. On another, it's a coming-of-age story in which a boy must absorb disturbing information and use it to make a decision that will affect the rest of his life. On a third level, Blood Child is my pregnant man story. I've always wanted to explore what it might be like for a man to be put in that most unlikely of all positions. Do you accept the, the absence of slavery between those two races, Rob? For me, you know, like it's a story about power, I suppose. Mm. And the kind of like intricacies of how that can lie with one or another and actually perhaps not really settle in, in kind of one place or another. And I think it's very difficult to say it's not about that certainly other characters in the book that she writes feel that they are captive and that there's no way out gan's brother talks about wanting to go away and at the at the very last bit of the book gan realizes that the only way is to is to kill themselves uh, mm. and so there's a real very explicit idea of of being trapped and and not having your freedom and I don't know if that's if that's not slavery, I don't know. Yeah, it's not like um, prison where they've done something and had their freedom taken away and, and might get it back or, you know, this is uh, a permanent state of affairs. So it's very hard to say, I think, that maybe it wasn't about slavery, but it certainly touches on elements of that. So, yeah, I think it's perhaps slightly disingenuous to say that she was uh, shocked <laughs> that anyone could have possibly read that in. Yeah. So, um, I'm just looking and I can... I can see the word, yeah, you know, the, the word enslaved is there yeah. in the text. I think it's very difficult to determine this relationship because it's so multifaceted and that's what mm. makes it so interesting, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Just on the side of thinking of it in terms of slavery, I mean, or, or not, the world that Butler has built here has a kind of history that we get little glimpses of mm. and there's a moment when the narrator talks about early relationships between humans and the, the click and says back when the click saw us as not much more than convenient big warm-blooded animals they would pen several of us together male and female and feed us only eggs that way they could be sure of getting another generation out of us no matter how we tried to hold out we were lucky that it didn't go on long a few generations of it and we would have been little more than convenient big animals. Which certainly sounds like a form of sexual or, or reproductive slavery to me. But I guess what we have to determine is firstly what kind of biological relationship it is, it is exactly. 
the click seemed to depend upon hosts, right, to reproduce. So I was reading about there's several different types of parasites. There's hollow parasites who need a host, and then then there are facultative parasites for whom it's merely advantageous, and the click seemed to be closer to the former. But then it is clear that it's just advantageous to use human bodies in particular for them because more of the young survive in a human body. My feeling was that this exploitation on the part of one species over another has merely become codified, has merely had sort of cultural mechanisms introduced, which really complicates it. You know, if if we view it as purely parasitic in biological terms alone, it's possible to consider it a form of sexual slavery but then that does ignore the cultural mechanisms at play even if they have been mm. developed in order to allow that practice to go on so there's a strong sense that the relationship has shifted enormously over time and has a kind of diplomatic edge i suppose my question about it really is do we accept those culturally established diplomatic relationships as genuine and profound connections or are they just a facade behind which a, a one-sided sexual dominance you know is really going on and is is gan fooling himself into understanding it differently is there something hidden within the affection the tenderness that goes on between them? yeah i think i mean as you say what what makes this so powerful and rereading it for a second time really sort of like knocked back by the by the complexity of what's going on here when you really start looking mm. Because I think what makes this stand out from a lot of other sort of science fiction that I've read is the kind of emotional intelligence that she gives, not just to the, the humans that we're obviously meant to, in some way, kind of like have more of a bond with, but also to the clique themselves. And with, with that emotion comes a kind of emotional irrationality. Mm that complicates this even further that yeah there's obviously cultural social norms have come into play to make this a transaction rather than something enforced and that if, you know they talk of families being families of click and the terrans being bonded and that the kind of process starts from a young age and certainly see with Tegato she considers herself part of the family and other members of the Terran family consider her part of that family too but then also there's these kind of outbursts in the book from Tegato where Gan is kind of unsure suddenly about whether he wants to have these eggs inside him and you know there's this outburst that says you know these are adult things this is my life my family then at this layer of there's a selfish element there but there's also a kind of an element of self-preservation and there's a, an emotional weight which is going to mean it's not something as simple as a kind of rational subjugation of um, of another people. You know, it's almost like the Terrans don't come into it that much. It's not imagining that they're some kind of lesser people who should be treated like this because they're somehow inferior. Mm. It's actually, at this point, purely about being able to bring children into the world. Which begs the question of why those more codified forms of contact have been evolved at all mm. we've we've seen in the history that underpins the story that it is possible to simply overpower humans mm. and to take control of them completely and to use them simply as as hosts and have no meaningful relationship between them so why does it develop into something like this and you seem to be saying that it's through the emotional intelligence of the 
slick themselves. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it reminded me an awful lot of when you read these kind of highly dubious kind of evolutionary sociology kind of excusing perhaps behaviour that society we might consider not acceptable because it somehow has a basis in something that's evolved, you know, thinking specifically about elements of kind of sexual violence or things like this, mm. that they're somehow passed away being like, oh, but of course, because, you know, men have evolved to be like this and it's um, not something we can change so quickly. Mm. And this feels like this is the kind of counter side of this argument, saying that actually no society has evolved to, you know, there are, there are these very base instincts and there are certain unpleasant elements to our nature, but as a society we've decided not to live like that. Mm. And this seems to be what's happening perhaps in the in the click society and that this particular Tagatoi seems to be at the forefront of this and that it's kind of explained in the story that there are maybe other less scrupulous um, members of, of that particular race, yeah. alien race, to compress that level of... Because you feel like there's this huge Terran civil rights movement that sits alongside a kind of history of moral thought about how to interact with these these aliens which have come to them very conveniently and to compress all that into this into this story is really is really quite amazing yeah yeah it makes it very difficult to say one way or the other they are very distinctly not free that's the thing that seems to get ignored by some members of the family i'm thinking maybe of the older sister who fully mm. commits to to this well servitude would willingly commit to it they're not free in a number of ways so they there was a ban on owning weapons or motorized motorized mm. vehicles they're physically intimidated mm-hmm. you know if you take that example of caging is it called caging yeah 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 yeah, uh, yeah. and repeatedly you know always described as caging yeah. never you know because there are this what's being described as an embrace or a hug or you know there are there are ways of describing this in um in a way that's very different but yeah always always as caging that particular gesture i think can carry the weight of a lot of those conflicted feelings because it's one gesture that is experienced very differently by different people gan describes how Tagatoi cages his mother he says she lay down now against Tagatoi. The whole left row of Tagatoi's limbs closed around her, holding her loosely but securely. I had always found it comfortable to lie that way, but except for my older sister, no one else in the family liked it. They said it made them feel caged. And so depending on your perspective, you can see this as an act of violence or of mm. protection or tenderness. And if one is brought, brought up within a form of slavery, let's say, let's say servitude for the, for mm. the sake of <laughs> Octavia Butler's own, <laughs> own intentions, it's extremely difficult to see that from the outside and to recognize it for what it is. And I think that's yeah. a huge part of where the richness of the story lies. And maybe there's an element of a kind of Stockholm syndrome there but Mm. far more complex because there are there are also feelings of love and tenderness and Mm. sexual desire and and jealousy in these relationships as well as fear and physical intimidation and and dominance and so on yeah it's an enormously complex for such a short Mm. story isn't it i mean it's only 20 pages or so i must do it to someone tonight I stopped in spite of her urgency and stood in her way. Don't you care who? She flowed around me and into my bedroom. I found her waiting on the couch we shared. There was nothing in Hoa's room that she could have used. She would have done it to Hoa on the floor. 
The thought of her doing it to Hoa at all disturbed me in a different way now, and I was suddenly angry. Yet I undressed and lay down beside her. I knew what to do, what to expect. I had been told all my life. I felt the familiar sting, narcotic, mildly pleasant. Then the blind probing of her ovipositor. The puncture was painless, easy. So easy going in. She undulated slowly against me, her muscles forcing the egg from her body into mine. I held on to a pair of her limbs until I remembered Lomas holding her that way. Then I let go, moved inadvertently, and hurt her. She gave a low cry of pain and I expected to be caged at once within her limbs. When I wasn't, I held on to her again, feeling oddly ashamed. We haven't even touched on the biological burden of childbirth and yeah, to what extent we might see the story as being a kind of allegory. There's yeah. definitely something phallic in the nature of the click with this sting and implanting the eggs and something that embodies this embedded hierarchy of human reproduction. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, it's obviously something very present in the book, but reading that afterward, the issues at least that are brought up by ideas of of kind of slavery and servitude for me were far more present in it than this pregnant man mm. element that she she brings up and perhaps this is massively to do with being a man mm. and not having to ever in any serious way consider what it would mean to have another life inside you mm. their kind of parasitic relationship was always the one that i felt i think because her description of these grubs when we do see them kind of being kind of quite viciously cut out of the body of someone. They are so alien that for me it didn't quite have an analogue with childbirth, mm-hmm. but perhaps that is because for me childbirth is always going to be something other and, and never going to have any kind of fear or physical presence attached to it. Mm. I guess the way it's described, these kind of egg sacs are attached to, to veins sharing the same blood supply and this is really a very similar situation to, to a human mother carrying a child. You could be right it, it might be something about being a, a male reader of this but mm. I do think it's interesting that the implication at least for me is that all right, in, in one sense the the idea of human reproduction is overturned and it's now the male body that must surrender to the process and be the passive party within it but then there seems to also it seems to be also the suggestion that in any reproductive cycle or or activity involving humanity there's a there's a hierarchical element and that it has to include some form of violence or domination although it has other characteristics i don't know maybe that there is a burden in it as well or at least that it's a, a conversation that needs to to happen and be ongoing for it not to simply be that and that there's no easy answer mm. you know they keep talking the, the kind of like horrific incident of this um this man who's carried the bugs to term if it will they have reached the the point where they have to um, be removed from his body or they'll eat him from the inside out mm-hmm. but the the way that that's constantly described is like you know this isn't the way it's meant to happen there should be things in place to create that situation and the so the problem at least for the click isn't so much that they need to do this because that's a, a fact of their nature but the problem is that it's not done properly and so again i guess that that idea of um discussing what 
human nature might be or whether there's certain things and the argument is actually perhaps redundant it's that how do you put things in place to um to make that as no you know like as not problematic or um, to kind of injure as few people or to hurt as to hurt as few people as possible mm. or perhaps even with the avoidance of hurt again says that his own father has lived through three of these pregnancies or three of these uh, carryings mm. and so yeah we kind of at least anecdotally see the flip side of this the father is is described as someone looked on as very, very positive this carpenter who's built this table and this uh, lived a kind of long and happy life and so perhaps this is at least anecdotally the kind of flip side yeah i mean i was thinking about whether the story is communicating that the the choice of carrying a child is for a woman to commit to some form of suffering from mm. Butler's perspective and that that's a choice that never has to be made for for men and yeah. she's placing the male in that in that particular circumstances and introducing lots of lots of the complicating factors emotional factors that perhaps mm. men just don't have to consider in human relationships of that kind the stranger community, globular, easily 12 feet high and wide, glided down into the vast, dimly lit food production hall of translator Noah Cannon's employer. The stranger was incongruously quick and graceful, keeping to the paths, never once brushing against the raised beds of fragile, edible fungi. It looked, Noah thought, a little like a great black moss-enshrouded bush with such a canopy of irregularly shaped leaves, shaggy mosses and twisted vines that no light showed through it. It had a few thick, naked branches growing out, away from the main body, breaking the symmetry and making the community look in serious need of pruning. So obviously we can't talk about every single story in this collection. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Speech Sounds, which I really, really enjoyed reading as well as probably my one of my favourites in, in the book. But the story I think we, we wanted to talk about together is called Amnesty, which is one that was included in the second edition only, actually. So I think the 1996 edition didn't include it, or it hadn't been written yet, even uh, by then. But it is a fascinating one. So it's a, another depiction of interspecies relationships. Um, I don't know about you, Rob, but I've, I've found these aliens some of the most inventive I've, I've ever seen in mm. science fiction. It's hard to see quite where the, you know, there's not an obvious inspiration from this, from nature. Mm. You know, maybe there's certain elements which you could pick out, but at very kind of low, you know, like almost cellular life forms. Yeah, it's really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, so just to outline the story a little bit, the premise is that Earth has been visited by this alien species and they've occupied the desert areas of the globe. And again, as in Blood Child, we see an initial hostility cooling to a, another kind of diplomatic coexistence. And the story is told in the third person, but is very closely aligned to the perspective of a translator called Noah who was abducted by the aliens upon their arrival and she has to initiate a group of prospective employees who will be working for these aliens. The aliens are described as communities or referred to as communities and they're not individuals mm. but collectives and some of the descriptions of them are quite beautiful I think They're described as sort of moss-like or, or tree-like. I kind of imagined them almost like clouds of like biomaterial <laughs> mm. and I love the 
descriptions of the language that has developed between the humans and the communities this idea of being enclosed so a human being has to be physically smothered by one of these entities um, and communicates through touch and and movement and gesture very very interesting i was reminded a little bit of ted chang's story story of your life another amazing first contact story involving a linguist have you heard of that rob no no it's um i believe four or five years before this story was published i think it's in mm. 1998 originally it was made into a film quite recently called arrival oh okay yeah so i have seen the film i've seen that film mm. certain little similarities so the emphasis on communication and the sudden appearance of these aliens they're kind of equally as other aren't they in those mm. two stories they go in very different directions but i was intrigued by sort of superficial similarities perhaps no no i think i think that's definitely definitely true mm. again butler seems to be concerned with elements of domination or or slavery did you did you have that impression rob Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But also the kind of relativity, I suppose, of what's kind of acceptable because it's normalised, somehow completely unacceptable because it comes from without. The way that as this this story goes on, there's a realisation that the horror, and it you know really is very horrible, the the description of this initial contact and the the way that the aliens attempt to learn about the humans through experimentation, mm. much as uh, probably humans have learnt a lot about anatomy and it kind of general biology over the last however many hundreds of years but the you know experimental subjects here are humans but then it becomes apparent that actually these same types of things can be committed by humans on other humans as well and, and what that means that our, our fear of um, alien interrogation is uh, slightly misplaced when a, a human interrogation might be just as bad if not if not worse that's really highlighted by the sort of format of the story most of which takes place as a kind of meeting mm. with lots of these prospective em- employees so you get a very wide range of responses to the presence of the aliens and the prospect of working for them some who react with absolute fury some who are sort of spiritually obsessed with them and others who seem to understand some of the nuances and and grasp something of that relativity that you're you're talking about in a way noah the the translator character is quite sort of zen in some sense isn't she mm. i mean to to like a incredible level the capacity for kind of forgiveness in there is um, kind of almost superhuman perhaps so she's been abducted at a very early stage and mishandled and harmed and what is almost described as sexually abused by these aliens but it's impossible to think about it in in those terms purely anyway there is a suggestion that both humans and the communities derive a form of pleasure from these encounters from these enclosures and noah is explicit about the fact that they preferred the communities preferred for human beings to be naked during these embrace embraces and again for me there's a kind of cronenbergian uh, mm. body horror element to that as well just yeah, being sort yeah, of subsumed absolutely. into this biomass uh, in a kind of sexual embrace but we can't see it as purely sexual because there's a, a scientific element to it isn't there there's this knowledge gathering and that's sort of what the 
communities are up to there, isn't it? Yeah, there's going to be some kind of resource extraction and it's never quite explained why, but yeah, it does certainly seem like it's purely for the goal of um, building some kind of ship that they can travel back to where they came from. But yeah, the um, the job seemingly that these recruits are being interviewed for does seeming seems to consist of... Um, kind of you know passing knowledge on to the the communities that need it and running some small errands because yes from what's described it's the technology is far more advanced there's maybe not so much that humans can offer them other than knowledge and then also the fact that they derive this pleasure from interaction with humans which for me is is yeah a really fascinating subplot of what's going on here i wonder did you think of this as a peculiarly american story i think although perhaps Butler is hesitant to align Bloodchild with any specifically American story of, of slavery. I feel like there are quite specific historical resonances in, in Amnesty in mm. terms of settlement, colonising and occupying land, mistreatment of uh, native population and so on. I, I feel like those parallels are quite clear but I'm, there's no mention yeah. of that at all in her afterward again, uh, which is quite brief. Of course, the, the idea of some other group coming to a place and taking over, even though it's said in the, in the book that they really only want deserts and areas of what's described as wasteland. Mm. Not really being used otherwise. But yeah, I think 100% there it has to be understood. Thinking about colonialism and what that means for the narrative. But I also think that maybe part of what's going on here is that Butler is suggesting that the language we use to speak about this is not enough somehow. Uh, how do you mean? Well, so I was thinking, um, so there's the other female recruit Thera mm. who is kind of put in as um, someone who's like very angry described as very afraid of these aliens and is kind of within this room given the voice of someone that's very negative towards their presence and when Noah says you know as far as territory goes they've taken almost nothing that we need Thera replies and says they still no right to it it's ours not theirs mm. That then maybe seems to be a certain critique of an idea of property or problematizing of that notion, which is really, really interesting and makes like a purely kind of colonial studies type reading of it more interesting, I suppose. What do you make of the idea that in, in both of these stories, a possible master-slave dynamic is clear, for instance, that the Tlick in Bloodchild can overpower humanity and that the communities have the option absolutely of destroying humanity or of, yeah. of overpowering them in whatever way yeah what do you make of the, f the fact that they both have this diplomatic element that they there is a degree of agreement between species always and it needn't be there and in, mm. in both cases actually it's on the part of the aliens and not humanity that that seems to be introduced that seems to be where it evolves I guess slightly ironically, it seems to be like a humanist position, I mm. suppose, that if we're to take this slightly more metaphorically, that it's going to be an idea that there is this capacity for moral or human decency, even within those who have power. I think this is where it comes with the, the kind of like generosity, mm. because in both of them, I don't think that butler is suggesting that there's a good or a bad side but that both have the capacity i mean because again 
in, in both the case of the clique and the communities, some of them, and again, perhaps even the minority of them, are pushing towards greater communication and cooperation and will treat each other with decency. Mm. But maybe that is still the exception. And so what we're seeing in these situations are the kind of outliers of a possible better way of of cooperation. Definitely, for me, a kind of humanist point of view. I don't have really clear feelings about it, and I think it's quite difficult to have them. But what I think is interesting is that it's the other, the, the alien... It seems to be the the party that makes allowances that behaves perhaps more diplomatically than they than they need to. I mean, even if we think of the title of the story, Amnesty, we can think about what we learn at the at the end of the story. We we learn that the communities were attacked yes. with nuclear weapons and that they returned precisely half of them without incurring any damage or or harm at all suggesting an enormous power and technology beyond human means completely and that what is going on or the sort of diplomatic process is a kind of pardon for that initial act of aggression on the human part if there's always some something metaphorically human about each of the alien species in 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 these stories i wonder why it is that that softening always comes from the other from that which should be that which is feared let's say in the stories and i was wondering whether it's even something as simple as a suggestion that those with power are the ones that must find that diplomatic or you know that the, there's a responsibility there i suppose perhaps there's a, a feeling that you know, like a kind of like real politic type idea that there is always going to be these imbalances of power mm or at least in the moment there certainly is. And so the only way to not do harm is if the person or the people or the race of uh, alien creatures that have this um, this power are able to stand back and think about not using it to harm others. It can be quite a difficult position to take, I suppose, if you take it as something which is applicable to human power relations because it undermines certain people at the receiving end of these mm. things because it suggests that actually they can't do anything that it has to be the responsibility of the ones yeah the ones that are doing you know like exercising their power the aggressors yes exactly yeah yeah. but then i suppose noah's position within it is interesting in that she perhaps sees that both humans and communities have the capacity for this you know like incredible violence and that for her at least the human violence was more hurtful because they did understand and that she can at least accept that maybe the kind of alien violence comes from a place of not understanding and so therefore the answer to that is education they're not like anything that any of us have ever known she told them i've heard them compared to sea urchins completely wrong i've also heard they were like swarms of bees or wasps also wrong but closer i think of them as what i usually call them communities each community contains several hundred individuals an intelligent multitude. But that's wrong too, really. The individuals can't really survive independently, but they can leave one community and move temporarily or permanently to another. They are products of a completely different evolution. When I look at them, I see what you've all seen. Outer branches and then darkness. Flashes of light and movement within. Do you want to hear more? They nodded. 
sat forward attentively, except for James Adio, who leaned back with an expression of contempt on his dark, smooth, young face. The substance of the things that looked like branches and the things that look like leaves and mosses and vines is alive and made up of individuals. It only looks like a plant of some sort. The various entities that we can reach from the outside feel dry and usually smooth. One normal-sized community might fill half of this room, but only weigh about six to eight hundred pounds. They aren't solid, of course, and within them there are entities that I've never seen. Being enveloped by a community is like being held in a sort of comfortable straitjacket, if you can imagine such a thing. You can't move much. You can't move at all unless the community permits it. You can't see anything. There's no smell. Somehow, though, after the first time, it isn't frightening. It's peaceful and pleasant. I don't know why it should be, but it is. In the afterword, Octavia Butler makes explicit reference to Dr. Wen Ho Lee of Los Alamos and what happened to him in the 90s. He's a scientist working kind of like US nuclear weapons program and that at some point it becomes apparent, interestingly through a US spy, that the Chinese have some information about nuclear warheads which should have, they shouldn't have, about US nuclear warheads that is. And they say, you know, someone must have leaked this information to the Chinese and so any kind of Americans with Chinese ancestry they become suspicious and then because of some other actions suspicions fall on Lee himself but as the course of the criminal trial takes place it becomes apparent that in fact he isn't the person responsible and that there's certain things that make this literally impossible yeah the information the Chinese have happens at a stage of the design process that happens after his involvement so actually he couldn't have passed on this information but for whatever reason the the FBI and the people involved are very very keen on him taking responsibility and eventually kind of get him on um, a completely separate charge of storing information unsecurely it's nothing to do with uh, espionage but in this entire time he's kept in solitary confinement constantly kept shackled and this happens for almost an entire year oh gosh Uh, yeah, it's a really, you know, and it's a, it, when this information comes out, it's a huge embarrassment to the US justice system. And to the very top, I think even sort of Clinton at the time apologises. But the fact that he's American-Chinese, I think, is, um, is something that's the cause for his treatment. You know, had this been a Caucasian member of the scientific community working there, the idea that probably they wouldn't have faced the same solitary confinement and the same kind of levels of suspicion. So, yeah. But in terms of the story, I think, you know, obviously it certainly massively plays into how we see otherness. And it's inter- I find it interesting that that is the only bit in the afterwards because it does really heavily sort of suggest that this is about just that one case but there's so much mm. more going on in the story that it feels like that only really feels apparently pertinent to the bit where it's talking about human society and how how they deal with the character noah they let her almost kill herself mm. they keep her in solitary confinement they blast loud distorted music into her cell they treat her essentially far worse than the communities when mm. she's abducted by them from Noah's perspective because they're aware of it. Right? There's an, there's an awareness, yeah. awareness of the suffering that she will go through. 
with that. Just in terms of the fact that these alien beings are not single entities, but are made up of a kind of like cooperative collection of all these different individual organisms which can mm. travel between different communities and that they will have like very specific roles within this being that some of them are used for sight and some of them are used for motion and all these things that actually possibly a large part of what's going on here is exploring what that notion of community means and what it means to to exist cohabit within a community and to to kind of like function like that and that these communities need to constantly evolve and to change because there's a, a certain element of when they're consumed and held perhaps are the humans then part of that community mm. can that be considered one being and that's kind of i guess also what i was quite interested in this um, joy of release that is conversely the joy of being held tight constricted within the community i mean it is very literally <laughs> the joy of giving self oneself up to a community yeah yeah absolutely i mean um i think it's quite pertinent as well that i, I think the word migration is used between mm. between these communities that there's a description of the murder if you could call it that or the attempt to destroy one of these communities and that it might be that in fact that was not really destruction, but simply a sort of reorganization of these individual elements. And that, yeah, it's possible to migrate from one community to another. There's an enormous strength in that. How many shirts would you give Blood Child and other stories, Rob? Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but for the, for the two stories we've been talking about, I would give it like a, a nine. Really love these two stories. The book itself, maybe like a seven. I think really, really good. I think, as you said at the beginning, some of the stories really held me more than others. But yeah, really fantastic collection that I'd, I'd highly recommend. Um, what what did you think? What would you give it? Uh, yeah, similar feelings to you. Based on three of the stories, so Blood Child, Speech Sounds and Amnesty, I would, yeah, this would easily get a nine from me. But although it was a wonderful reading experience reading, reading through all of them, I frankly was bored by <laughs> a couple of them. Um, I'm sure there are lots of Octavia Butler fans who would dispute this, but... The evening and the morning and the night gave me absolutely nothing. Really. <laughs> I don't know if you felt differently about that. Uh, yeah, I must admit, I really enjoyed that one. But You um, did? But, it, you know, it's just different, like a, a much straighter story, I suppose. But I just felt, yeah. again, some of the intricacies of the world that she created very interesting. I actually really enjoyed the closing story, The the Book of Martha, which mm. is a sort of more of a kind of fantasy story with strong religious theme in it, which is also wonderful so i think overall i'm going to agree with you rob and give it seven shirts it's absolutely going to send me to her other work yeah if i didn't have so many things to be reading at the moment for <laughs> various reasons i would be reading another butler book right now but i think i'm going to try one of her more straightforwardly science fiction series mm. actually maybe lilith's brood or something like that and and see how i get on so very pleased to be introduced to her work thanks a lot man we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter and if you like the show please leave us a review on iTunes thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time